Namaste, dear beautiful hearts. I hope that you're all healthy and I wish you more health through love, light and universal harmony. The 13th episode of my podcast entitled Ascension and Aviation, Wings and Dreams. And today I wanted to tell you about the life of Prince William of Gloucester. He was a very beautiful prince, full of energy, even though he was suffering from porphyria and an aviator as well, but who died in a tragic accident while piloting his plane in a competition. I will also tell you about the life of the Renaissance artist Leonardo da Vinci and his codex on the flight of birds. Prince William Henry Andrew Frederick of Gloucester born on the 18th of December 1941, who passed away on the 28th of August 1972, was a grandson of King George V. He was born at Hadley Common, Hertfordshire. His father was Prince Henry, Duke of Gloucester, the third son of King George V and Queen Mary. His mother was Alice, Duchess of Gloucester, the third daughter of the seventh Duke of Buccleuch, and Lady Margaret Ridgeman. At the time of his birth, he was fourth in line to the throne and ninth in line at the time of his death. A Cambridge and Stanford graduate, he joined the Foray and Commonwealth Office, serving in Lagos, Nigeria and Tokyo, Japan, before returning to take over royal duties. He led an active life, flying Piper aircraft, trekking through the Sahara, and even ballooning, but sadly, Prince William died in 1972, aged only 30 years old, in an air crash while piloting his plane in a competition. He remains the most recent descendant of King George III to be diagnosed with porphyria, a hereditary disease which has affected many royals throughout all of European history, in the United Kingdom, Prussia, and several German duchies and principalities. The mental illness exhibited by King George III, an ancestor of Prince William of Gloucester, in the Regency Crisis of 1788, has inspired several attempts at retrospective diagnosis. The first, written in 1855, 35 years after his death, concluded that he had acute mania. M. Gutmacher, in 1941, suggested manic depressive psychosis as a more likely diagnosis. The first suggestion that a physical illness was the cause of King George's mental derangement came in 1966 in a paper entitled The Insanity of King George III, a classic case of porphyria, with a follow-up in 1968, porphyria in the royal houses of Stuart, Hanover and Prussia. The papers by a mother and son psychiatrist team 
were returned as though the case for porphyria had been proven. But the response demonstrated that many experts, including those more intimately familiar with the manifestations of porphyria, were unconvinced. Many psychiatrists disagreed with the diagnosis, suggesting bipolar disorder as far more probable. Prince William of Gloucester's Career Prince William was the second member of the British royal family to work in the civil service or the diplomatic service. The first was his uncle, Prince George, Duke of Kent, in the 1920s. He joined the Commonwealth Office in 1965 and was posted to Lagos as the third secretary at the British High Commission. In 1968, he transferred to Tokyo as second commercial secretary in the British Embassy. By 1970, the health of his father, the Duke of Gloucester, had become critical after further strokes. William had no choice but to resign from the diplomatic service and return to Britain in order to take care of his father's estate and, as he put it, take on the full-time job of a royal prince. For the next two years, he managed Barnwell Manor and began to carry out public duties as a member of the royal family. Apart from taking over many engagements his father could no longer perform, William took particular interest in St. John Ambulance, where he became increasingly active. He was also president of the National Ski Federation Supporters Association, the Magdalene Society, Cambridge, the East Midlands Tourist Board and the Royal African Society. His patronages included the Royal Anthropological Institute of Great Britain, the British Schools Exploring Society, and the Tallinn Railway Preservation Society. Shortly before transferring to Tokyo in August 1968, Prince William was examined by a Royal Air Force doctor, Hedley Bell Ringer, at the request of the Prince's mother. William told the doctor that he had suffered from jaundice beginning in December 1965 and lasting several months. He had subsequently noticed that his skin was prone to a blistering rash, particularly on exposure to sunshine. Bellringer tentatively diagnosed porphyria, prescribed sunblock cream and gave him a medical warning card regarding the need to avoid certain medications. Although he was aware of the theory of the royal family's history of porphyria, then being proposed by two German-born British psychiatrists, the mother and son team of Ida McElpine and Richard Hunter, he stated he tried not to let it influence him. With all the symptoms, I was left with little option but to diagnose the prince's condition as porphyria. William was later examined by hematologists and at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge and also by a professor Ishitara in Tokyo, both of whom also concluded he was suffering from variegate porphyria by then in remission. A member of the British royal family being reliably diagnosed with porphyria, 
added credence to the theory first proposed by Professor Michael Pine in the late 1960s that Porphyria was the source of the ill health of both Mary, Queen of Scots, an ancestor of both of William's parents and of George III, and that the disorder had been inherited by some members of the royal families of the UK, Prussia, and several German duchies and principalities. A licensed pilot and president of the British Light Aviation Centre, Prince William owned several aircraft and competed in amateur airshow races. On the 28th of August 1972, he was competing in the Goodyear International Air Trophy at Halfpenny Green near Wolverhampton with Viral Mitchell, a pilot with whom the Prince had often raced, listed as a passenger. Shortly after their takeoff, and at a very low altitude, the Piper Cherokee banked abruptly to port with an extreme increase in the rate of turn and corresponding loss of altitude. The wing hit a tree and sheared off, and the out-of-control plane flipped over and crashed into an earthen bank, bursting into flames. Prince William and Mitchell were killed. The crash happened before 30,000 spectators. The fire took two hours to control, and the bodies were identified at inquest the next day from dental records. What is porphyria? The porphyrias are a group of blood diseases characterized by abnormally high levels of particular chemicals called porphyrins in the body due to deficiencies of certain enzymes essential to the synthesis of hemoglobin. Porphyrins are the conjugate acids of ligands that bind metals to form complexes, a ligand being an iron or molecule which is a functional group that binds to a central metal atom to form a coordination complex. They often cause liver disorders in which the substances called porphyrins build up in the body, negatively affecting the skin or nervous system. The name porphyrin derives from the Greek word porphyra, meaning purple because the urine of people suffering from porphyria is tinted with blood. There are at least eight types of porphyria. The symptoms associated with the various types of porphyria differ depending upon the specific enzyme that is deficient. It is important to note that people who have one type of porphyria do not develop any of the other types. The types that affect the nervous system are also known as acute porphyria as symptoms are rapid in onset and short in duration. Symptoms of an attack include abdominal pain, chest pain, vomiting, confusion, constipation, fever, high blood pressure, and high heart rate. The attacks usually last for days to weeks. Complications may include paralysis, low blood sodium levels, seizures, short-lived psychiatric symptoms such as anxiety, confusion, hallucinations, and overt psychosis.
history of this disease. The underlying mechanism was first described by Felix Hobsiller, a German physiologist and chemist, and the principal founder of the disciplines of biochemistry and molecular biology in 1871, and acute porphyrias were described by the Dutch physician Barend Stokthis in 1889. The links between porphyrias and mental illness have been noted for decades. In the early 1950s, patients with porphyria, occasionally referred to as porphyric hemophilia, and severe symptoms of depression or catatonia were treated with electroshock therapy, like people suffering from what was and still is termed mental diseases. However, porphyria has also been suggested as an explanation for the origin of vampire and werewolf legends, based upon certain perceived similarities between the condition and the folklore. In January 1964, Dr. Lee Ellis' 1963 paper on porphyria and the etiology of werewolves was published in Proceedings of the Royal Society of Medicine. Later, Nancy Garden argued for a connection between porphyria and the vampire belief in her 1973 book, Vampires. In 1985, biochemist David Dolphin's paper for the American Association for the Advancement of Science, Porphyria, Vampires and Werewolves, the Ideology of European Metamorphosis Legends, gained widespread media coverage, popularizing the idea. The theory has been rejected by a few folklorists and researchers, as not accurately describing the characteristics of the original werewolf and vampire legends or the disease, and as potentially stigmatizing people with porphyria. A 1995 article from the Postgraduate Medical Journal via the American National Institute of Health explains, as it was believed that the folkloric vampire could move about freely in daylight hours, as opposed to the 20th century variant, today so-called vampires are considered to be suffering from congenital erythropoietic porphyria. Congenital erythropoietic porphyria, CEP, is the rarest type of porphyria and is commonly seen in infancy. The most common symptom of erythropoietic porphyria and X-linked porphyria or XLP, which involves patients with symptoms of erythropoietic porphyria having a genetic change in a gene located on the X chromosome, is severe pain on sun exposure. Some patients may also be sensitive to some types of artificial light. When the skin is exposed to the sun, patients first develop tingling, itching, and or burning of the skin. These symptoms serve as warning signs as longer exposure can result in severe pain.
Affected individuals may also have an abnormal accumulation of body fluid under affected areas called edema and or persistent redness or inflammation of the skin called erythema. These affected areas of the skin may become abnormally thick. In rare cases, the affected areas of the skin may develop sac-like lesions like blisters and scar if exposure to sunlight is prolonged. So this severe skin photosensitivity may lead to scarring, blistering and increased hair growth at the face and back of the hands. Photosensitivity and infection may cause the loss of fingers and facial features. Symptoms of CEP range from mild to severe and may include excessive hair growth throughout the body called hypertrichosis, reddish discoloration of the teeth, anemia, and reddish-colored urine. In CEP, there is a defect in the synthesis of heme within the red blood cells of bone marrow. Heme being a precursor to and component of hemoglobin, which is necessary to bind oxygen in the bloodstream. Heme is biosynthesized in both the bone marrow and the liver. Most types of porphyria are inherited from one or both of a person's parents and are due to a mutation in one of the genes that make heme. This defect leads to an increase in the buildup and therefore waste of porphyrin and its precursors, which leads to the signs and symptoms of this nightmarish disease. Inheritance is autosomal recessive, meaning it is linked to non-sex chromosomes and occurs in the recessive variant of the gene. It is caused by mutations in the urose gene, which is the gene that provides instructions for making an enzyme or protein that acts as a biological catalyst, accelerating chemical reactions. This enzyme is involved in the production of heme. Heme is vital for all of the body's organs. Although it is most abundant in the blood, bone marrow and liver. Heme is an essential component of iron-containing proteins called hemoproteins, including hemoglobin, the protein that carries oxygen in the blood. Treatment for CEP, congenital erythropoietic porphyria, may include a bone marrow transplant and hematopoietic stem cell cord blood transplantation. Hematopoietic stem cells are the stem cells that give rise to other blood cells. This process is called hematopoiesis. Hematopoietic stem cell transplantation is the transplantation of multipotent hematopoietic stem cells, usually derived from bone marrow, peripheral blood, or umbilical cord blood, in order to replicate inside of a patient and to produce additional normal blood cells. It may be autologous, the patient's own stem cells are used, allogeneic, the stem cells come from a donor, or syngeneic, from an identical twin. Other treatments for congenital erythropoietic porphyria 
include blood transfusions or spleen removal to reduce the amount of porphyrin produced by the bone marrow. Affected people also have to avoid sunlight exposure. The 1995 article from the Postgraduate Medical Journal via the American National Institute of Health about the difference between the folkloric vampire who didn't fear sunlight as opposed to the 20th century variant who is diagnosed as suffering from congenital erythropoietic porphyria, therefore is seriously harmed by sunlight exposure, further states that congenital erythropoietic porphyria cannot easily explain the folkloric vampire, but may be an explanation of the vampire as we know it in the 20th century. In addition, the folkloric vampire, when unearthed, was always described as looking quite healthy, as they were in life, while, due to disfiguring aspects of the disease, sufferers would not have passed the exhumation test. Individuals with congenital erythropoietic porphyria do not crave blood. The enzyme hematin necessary to alleviate their symptoms is not absorbed intact on oral ingestion, and drinking blood would have no beneficial effect on the sufferer. Finally, and most importantly, the fact that vampire reports were literally rampant in the 18th century and that congenital erythropoietic porphyria is an extremely rare manifestation of a rare disease makes it an unlikely explanation of the folkloric vampire. My understanding of such a disease knowing that it was also the cause of the mental illness exhibited by King George III, an ancestor of Prince William of Gloucester, a mental illness that the king's physicians also defined as acute mania and later as a bipolar disorder and which also causes psychosis. And considering that I myself was diagnosed with suffering from schizophrenia, which is often mentioned alongside bipolar disorder and manic depression among such other diseases, is that these mental and emotional disorders are caused by real psychic attacks by real psychic vampires that are simply real demons and evil spirits often preying on the most able, young, healthy and pure-hearted people Therefore, people with healthy blood. These demons do exist. And their attacks on the best people has often been analyzed and documented since the beginning of humanity's history. The only difference is that in the past, people suffering from symptoms caused by such attacks were not cured with electroshocks, cerebral lobotomy or chemical medication, but with spiritual understanding of the manifestations of these evil spirits within the breath of life and energy or heart of the patient or victim in the case of such a horrible condition. 
The hearing of voices, for example, is a symptom inherent to the occurrence of the psychiatric condition termed psychosis. A psychiatrist once told me that her understanding of this symptom was that it was occurring within my mind or consciousness because I had created those voices from my own will. It is just a ridiculous analysis of this very painful and deeply traumatizing symptom because no one would do that to themselves. Life is complicated enough, no one needs to create voices in their heads. Especially since I've always had a tiny voice, especially when I was younger, and I've always been very nice and polite to people around me. Then why would I create voices to scream insults at me and pollute me in every possible way? And it is this specific comment by a psychiatrist which caused my total loss of trust in the ability of psychiatry to cure me. Really. Later, I did meet some psychiatrists who were more open to the idea that patients who didn't feel comfortable using antipsychotic medicine didn't have to. And to these wonderful psychiatrists talking in group session therapy about the ways in which we were able individually to alleviate the symptoms from our own beliefs and sensibilities was crucial to healing. Buddhist meditation and art were often mentioned. My understanding is that the purity of my breath of life, therefore of my blood, as in the oxygen in my blood, was under attack, and it explains why these diseases have often occurred within royal families. And the link between vampires and werewolves because I consider that the phenomenon of the occurrence of a mental and emotional dysfunction in a human being's consciousness and body, subject to physical metamorphosis, whereby the victim's body acquires animal or demon traits, and the existence of werewolves is totally different, because I love wolves. So a werewolf is different than a vampire to me. But the problem is that these attacks are extremely painful, both mentally and physically, with rheumatisms, heaviness and pain of the heart and limbs, suffocations, heart palpitations and stabbing pain, often including the smell of blood while I was feeling the pain in my heart specifically, and even once a pain so horrible and similar to being bitten in the back of my head as by a beast of an animal with sharp pointed teeth, a pain I have experienced one night when I was waking up from a nightmare. A pain which has caused a real feeling of having a hole at the back of my head for a long time and which was termed a mere hallucination by the psychiatrist I spoke to at the time. These painful symptoms, if not understood and treated appropriately, kill the patient eventually, while they are only called mere hallucinations by psychiatrists. And I have survived, and I'm still surviving, to the worst of these demonic attacks only thanks to my faith in God and spiritual strength and because I categorically refuse to take antipsychotic medicine, and I cure myself through Buddhist meditation, 
breathing exercises, prayer, fasting, herbal natural remedies and lately with crystal therapy as well as with an almost unnatural bodily hygiene which is necessary to keep the foul smells of the demons away. However, many people suffering from depression, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia are adolescents and sometimes even younger. Therefore, they are only children. They do not have my knowledge, understanding and experience of the world and its spiritual diseases throughout time and space in the historical perspective that my faith, my studies and spiritual understanding of reincarnation and paranormal phenomena have granted me. Also, it is totally absurd in my perspective to use the term mental disease to refer to a condition occurring in the consciousness or mind of a child, since a child's brain is usually young, healthy and clean. It is actually to weigh down on, to oppress and depress, to darken and burden the pure light of the pure breath of life of pure-hearted people, that these demons pollute us with foul, repugnant and disgusting smells, like that of excrements even, and of all kinds of other sorts of putrid matter. The consciousness and breath of demons is as low as the sewers of humanity's consciousness. They use nightmares that eventually cause behavioral disorders from the traumatisms they create, ugly physical disfigurations and metamorphosis in the victims, which can even transform our physical bodies to resemble theirs, before the demon eventually kills the victim. A psychiatrist also told me once that schizophrenia was a fatal disease to coerce me into taking antipsychotic medicine, which I still continued to abstain from because of the horrible second effects it caused in me, even though I was a bit more worried to learn that I could also die, since I didn't know it yet. But eventually I realized that the goal of the demon whose voices I was hearing wasn't just to drain me of my energy through nightmares, daymares and pain and watch me live my life the rest of the time while screaming nonsense at me and polluting my atmosphere. Its goal was really to destroy in my heart the very joy of being alive and healthy, therefore full of life, love, light and energy through real evil hatred for life itself simply real dark envy and jealousy of the light of love in my heart, mind and body, even of my sexual energy and of the attraction that love, light and energy could generate around me and suscitate on men specifically, just really scary ideas that demon was screaming at me. Etymology of the word Nightmare a mare, M-A-R-E, Old English mare, Old Dutch mare, Proto-Slavic mara, Old High German, Old Norse and Swedish as well, is a malicious entity in Germanic and Slavic folklore that rides on people's chests while they sleep, bringing on nightmares. The word mare, M-A-R-E, through Middle English, from the Old English feminine noun, maer, 
which had numerous variant forms, including Mare, M-A-R-E, Mir, M-E-R-E, and Mare. These in turn come from Proto-Germanic Maron, M-A-R-O-N, the source of the Old Norse Mara, from which are derived the Swedish Mara, M-A-R-I, Icelandic Mara, Faroese Mara with double R, Danish Mare, Norwegian Mare and Mara, Dutch Nacht Mary, and German Nacht Mach. The suffix Mar in the French word Cauchemar, Nightmare in English, is borrowed from the Germanic through the Old French Mare, M-A-R-E. Most scholars trace the word back to the reconstructed Proto-Indo-European root mer, M-E-R, associated with crushing, pressing and oppressing, or according to other sources, to rub away or to harm. However, other etymologies have been suggested. For example, Eva Pox saw the term as being cognate with the Greek Indo-European moros, meaning doom. There is no definite answer among historians about the time of origin of the word. According to the philologist Yeliaza Melitinsky, the Proto-Slavonic root Mara passed into the Germanic language no later than the first century before Christ. In Norwegian and Danish, the words for nightmare are Marerit and Marerit, respectively, which can be directly translated as Mare Ride. The Icelandic word Martrod has the same meaning, Trod from the verb Troda, trample, stamp on, related to tread, whereas the Swedish Mardrom translates as Mare Dream. Beliefs the mare was believed to ride horses, which left them exhausted and covered in sweat by the morning. She could also entangle the hair of the sleeping man or beast, resulting in mare locks. Called marflator, mare braids, or martovor, mare tangles in Swedish, or mareflater or Marifloker in Norwegian. The belief probably originated as an explanation to the Polish plate phenomenon, a hair disease. Even trees were thought to be ridden by the mare, resulting in branches being entangled. The undersized, twisted pine trees growing on coastal rocks and on wet grounds are known in Sweden as Martalar, mare pines, or in German as Alpthrom Kiefer, Nightmare Pine. According to Paul Davereux, mares included demonesses who took on the form of animals when their spirits went out and about while they were in trance. These included animals such as frogs, cats, horses, hares, dogs, oxen, birds, and often bees and wasps. Beliefs by region. In Scandinavian folklore, sleep paralysis is caused by a mare. 
a supernatural creature related to incubi and succubi. The mare is attested as early as in the Norse Inglinga saga from the 13th century. Here, King Vanlandi Sveiktisen of Uppsala lost his life to a nightmare, a Mara, conjured by the Finnish sorceress Huld or Hulda, hired by the king's abandoned wife, Drifa. The king had broken his promise to return within three years, and after ten years had elapsed, the wife engaged the sorceress to either lure the king back to her or, failing that, to assassinate him. Van Landi had scarcely gone to sleep when he complained that the nightmare rode him. When the man held the king's head, it trod on his legs, on the point of breaking, and when the retinue then seized his feet, the creature fatally pressed down on his head. In Sami mythology, there is an evil elf called Diatan, who transforms into a winged monster bird or other evil animal and sits on the breasts of sleeping people, giving nightmares. According to the Vatensdaela saga, Torkel Silver, Torkel Silfri, has a dream about riding a red horse that barely touched the ground, which he interpreted as a positive omen, but his wife disagreed, explaining that a mare signified a man's fetch, Thilgia, and that the red color bodied or signified bloodiness. This association of the nightmare with the fetch is thought to be of late origin and an interpolation in the text dating circa 1300, with the text exhibiting a confounding of the words mar, m-a-r-r, and mara, m-a-r-a. A fetch is an apparition of a living person, a spectre, or a double. From 1787, an English dialect word of unknown origin. A peculiarly weird type of apparition is the wraith, or double, of which the Irish fetch is a variant. The wraith is an exact facsimile of a living person who may himself see it. Goethe, Shelley, and other famous men are said to have seen their own wraith. The fetch makes its appearance shortly before the death of the person it represents, either to himself or his friends, or both. Another possible example is the account in the Erbigia saga of the sorceress Gerid, accused of assuming the shape of a night rider or ride by night. Marlidendar or Kveldrida, and causing serious trampling bruises on Gunlog Thorbjornsson. The Marlidendar mentioned here has been equated to the Mara by commentators. As in English, the name appears in the word for nightmare in the Nordic languages. The Swedish word mardrom, literally meaning Mara dream, the Norwegian word marerit, and the Danish marerirt, both meaning mare ride, or the Icelandic word martrod, meaning Mara dreaming repeatedly. Explanation of the folkloric beliefs pertaining to the mare in Germany 
In Germany, they were known as Mara, Mar, Mer. German folklorist Franz Felix Adalbert Kuhn records a Westphalian charm or prayer used to ward off mares from Wilhelmsburg near Paderborn. Here I am lying down to sleep. No nightmare shall plague me until they have swam through all the waters that flow upon the earth and counted all the stars that appear in the firmament. Thus help me God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Such charms are preceded by the example of the Münchener Nachtsiegen of the 14th century. See also Elf under medieval and early modern German texts. Its texts demonstrate that certainly by the late Middle Ages, the distinction between the mare, the Alp, and the Trute Drude was being blurred, the mare being described as the Alp's mother. Explanation of the folkloric beliefs pertaining to the mare in Slavic countries. In Poland, etymologically, the Polish smora, Mara, is connected to Mara, Marzana, a demon of winter. In Poland, folkloric beliefs for its explanation was that it could be the soul of a person, alive or dead, such as a mean woman, or someone who had been so wronged that they became mean. It was believed that the mare could turn into animals and objects, such as cats, frogs, yarn, straw, or apples. People believed that the mare drained people as well as cattle and horses of their energy and all their blood at night. To protect livestock, some people hung mirrors over the manger to scare the mare with its own face or affixed dead birds of prey to the stable doors, sometimes tying red ribbons on the horses. A Czech mura denotes a kind of elf or spirit as well as a sphinx moth or night butterfly. Other Slavic languages with cognates that have the double meaning of moth are Kashubian Mora or Slovak Mora. In the Northwest and South Russian traditions, the Mara is a female character similar to Kikimora, usually invisible. It can take the form of the black shadow of a woman with long shaggy hair, which she combs sitting on a yarn. In Croatia, Mora refers to a nightmare. Mora or Mara is one of the spirits from ancient Slav mythology, a dark spirit who tricks men into thinking that she is beautiful to visit them in their dreams, torturing them with desire before killing them. In Serbia, a mare is called Mora or Nochnik, Nochnika, night creature, masculine and feminine respectively. In Romania, they were known as Moroi. Some believe that a Mora enters the room through the keyhole, sits on the chest of the sleeper and tries to strangle them, hence moriti, to torture, to bother, to strangle, umoriti, to tire, to kill, 
Umor, Tiredness, and Umoran, Tired. To repel Mora's children are advised to look at the window or to turn the pillow and make the sign of the cross on it, called Prekrstiti Yastuk, in the early 19th century. Vuk Karadzic mentions that people would repel Moras by leaving a broom upside down behind their doors, or putting their belt on top of their sheets, or saying an elaborate prayer poem before they go to sleep. The Night Hag or Old Hag is the name given to a supernatural creature commonly associated with the phenomenon of sleep paralysis. It is a phenomenon during which a person feels the presence of a supernatural malevolent being which immobilizes the person as if sitting on their chest or the foot of their bed. The word nightmare was used to describe this phenomenon before the word received its modern, more general meaning. Various cultures have various names for this phenomenon and supernatural character. But what is obvious is that in Scandinavia, Germany, Russia, and other Slavic countries such as Poland, folkloric beliefs explaining this phenomenon were similar and all amounted to understanding that this was not a matter to take lightly as you could die from it. Therefore, these demonic attacks do harm and transform your body emotionally, physically, and mentally. These transformations can even occur very fast because demons are blind and use our own eyes to harm and transform our own appearances. They steal the energy and light from our eyes and replace it with their darkness, which is a mechanism that brings them closer and closer to our bodies and our world. So the more nightmares you are a victim to without learning to defend yourself appropriately, the more the light and accuracy of your eyesight diminishes until they blind you and you are left with no energy but with their diseases. I myself have suffered a transformation of my body not very different from a possession by a demon following that psychosis in Brussels. But thank God, because my purity of heart, my faith in God, my love for Jesus and the Virgin Mary are strong and invincible and have always guided me, I realized and understood very early on that only the purification of my breath of life and my heart would save me. Because this demon got closer to my energy first by polluting my sense of smell. And one day, while I was outside walking back home after school, I had never smelled excrements before elsewhere than in the toilet or from dog poop on the street and even then I am a vegetarian so my excrements barely have a smell let alone such disgusting, foul, frightening and horrible smells as those I was attacked by while hearing the evil voices of the worst hatred I could never have conceived as existing in my world let alone as able to talk to me, the innocent and angelic woman-child I was, especially at that point in my life. I was a student in art school, a childhood dream, 
So I was happy to be developing my artistic skills in a fine arts school at last. I wasn't prepared for that. So that horrible, foul smell during so-called hallucinations, which were in reality demonic attacks through daymares and nightmares, woke me to the truth behind schizophrenia and all similar diseases. And it is actually when I was attacked in that way the first time in Brussels that I understood right away that I was dealing with Satan. My understanding of evil from my knowledge of its historic manifestations, especially through Jesus' crucifixion and Christian martyrdom, was absolute filth, violence, stupidity and brutality, and this is exactly how I felt attacked. Therefore, it is a question of smell, and the smell of evil is unmistakable. It is the foulest, heaviest, and its effect on the mind and physical body is just the heaviest depression, sadness, despair, pain and feeling of loneliness, and if you don't find the adequate cure, it becomes rapid decay and eventually death. If the victim doesn't use the most logical remedy, that of purifying their breath of life, first to move away from the proximity of the foul smell in order to learn how to defend themselves through analyzing and understanding the manifestations of the demon's attacks on her, his heart, mind and body, they simply die. These demons do attack the chest or the heart as ancient folkloric beliefs pertaining to accounts on the occurrences and explanations of nightmares do explain because I had also experienced since childhood the kind of nightmares where I felt like something heavy was oppressing my chest, and once I even saw the darkest, most frightening and out of this world, blacker than hell, and most draining than hell's bottomless pit, scariest image of a face standing above me while my chest was being oppressed and I couldn't breathe, move nor scream for help. In Brussels, my third eye also felt darkened and heavy. I was already a yogi and had started practicing Buddhist meditation in Burkina Faso after my return from New York. Therefore, my third eye chakra was already activated and there was a moving spark of light in the middle of my forehead, in my third eye chakra, which I could focus on while meditating, and it was a very joyful, energizing and calming feeling. That demon had the nerve to try and steal the light from my third eye as well. So in Brussels, my head became heavy, swollen, I had rashes on my neck, up to my cheek and left ear, and my eyesight was blurred as if it wanted to take control of my eyes, my brain and my whole body all at once. Eventually, my body also became heavy and swollen to the point where my clothes didn't fit me anymore, and I thought it was the second effect from the antipsychotics. Now I know it was the demon which thought it had hit the energy jackpot it seemed, but I showed it otherwise. So after attacking the victim's sense of smell, the demon can enter the victim's body and because its breath is so heavy, repugnant, it is very difficult not to feel weighed down, oppressed, suffocated and depressed 
in consequence, especially since the victim doesn't know right away what is happening to her or him, but the heaviness in the heart prevents you from breathing properly, and then the demons uses horrible thoughts and ideas to darken your whole consciousness, your life and your whole world, making you paranoid and forcing you to see life under the darkest, foulest veil of this demonic madness and despair can overwhelm you because you feel that you are alone in the world with an indescribable and shameful pain and no one can help you. Thank God in my experience I had my faith in God and in myself with me all along so I wasn't totally alone. But then it uses suicidal thoughts and if you are not strong enough you can succumb to the darkness because it swallows all the light and hope in your heart and the darkness can become your horizon. The demon on the other hand can exist in your body if you do not defend yourself. It feeds off of your energy and if you kill yourself, your mind and body can get stolen or abducted by the demon who will use your energy to survive inside of your physical body, turning you into a zombie. Hence the term psychic vampire and the reason why no one should ever commit suicide. However, there's worse. From my own experience, the most horrible, shameful, scary and painful part of these attacks is the sexual aspect of these demonic possessions attempts. I say attempts because I fought with all that I had and thank God I managed to save my heart, soul and body from the demon and never was made to do anything that went beyond my innocence. But I did realize while it was happening and I couldn't stop it that this was the mechanism used by demons to turn people into demons. So something was protecting me and it was my innocence and my incapacity at even understanding evil, really. One of the nightmares I saw in Brussels before the psychosis involved a rape attempt by a very tall and skinny, long blonde-haired demon during my sleep. While still asleep, I woke up to the pressure of his body's weight on top of me. I couldn't see his face because his long hair was hiding it totally, which was very scary because it seemed that it didn't have a face, only hair and I could feel a pressure on my genitals, so I fought with all my might and the weight lifted and I woke up. I was very shocked and frightened. It had never happened to me before. I could feel that something worse was going to happen because my state of depression was increasing and I didn't understand why since going to art school was the realization of a childhood dream. But as the days were passing, I was feeling lonelier and lonelier, sadder and sadder, and my life had no sense. After that nightmare, I was just dumbfounded and felt victimized by that situation. I couldn't talk about it to anyone, and I felt like the demon's hatred towards me was beyond my whole universe of what was even conceptually possible. In the life of the 30-year-old child that I was, 
Eventually, I was only able to analyze its manifestations on my psyche, on my heart, mind, and body, and to protect and defend myself accordingly through the light of the universal love and faith in my heart. But I did feel the attacks on my body and it was a violation of my chastity, my innocence and purity by a demon and there was nothing worse. It is bad enough to be raped or attempted at being raped by a man, let alone by a demon. These demonic attacks make you feel like it is the end of the world. Each person suffering from such severe nightmares in a context of a schizophrenia diagnosis is living the end of their world. And you're alone. There is so much that even good compassionate psychiatrists can do and you cannot tell them everything. Because you're ashamed of the horror that you are experiencing. But I survived thanks to my faith in God. Nothing else. If you do not have faith in God, or a belief in a higher consciousness, a belief in a higher sense of goodness, or love, a love that is stronger than evil, you will lose. From Wikipedia, an incubus is a demon in male form who, according to mythological and legendary traditions, lies upon sleeping women in order to engage in sexual activity with them. Its female counterpart is a succubus. Salacious tales of incubi and succubi have been told for many centuries in traditional societies. Some traditions hold that repeated sexual activity with an incubus or succubus may result in the deterioration of health, an impaired mental state, or even death. The word incubus, from Latin incubare, to lie upon, is derived from late Latin incubo, a nightmare induced by such a malevolent evil demon spirit. One of the earliest mentions of an incubus comes from Mesopotamia on the Sumerian king list circa 2400 before Christ, where the hero Gilgamesh's father is listed as Lilu. It is said that Lilu disturbs and seduces women in their sleep, while Lilitu, a female demon, appears to men in their erotic dreams. Two other corresponding demons appear as well. Ardat Lili, who visits men by night and begets ghastly children from them, and Idlu Lili, who is known as a male counterpart to Ardat Lili, and visits women by night and begets from them. Ardat Lili is derived from Ardatu, the word for a woman of marriageable age, and Idlu Lili is derived from Idlu meaning a grown man. These demons were originally storm demons, but they eventually became regarded as night demons because of mistaken etymology. Incubi were thought to be demons who had sexual relations with women, sometimes producing a child by the woman. Succubi, by contrast, were demons thought to have intercourse with men. 
Debate about these demons began early in the Christian tradition. Saint Augustine touched on the topic in De Civitate Dei, the city of God. There were too many alleged attacks by incubi to deny them. He stated there is also a very general rumor. Many have verified it by their own experience, and trustworthy persons have corroborated the experience others told, that sylvans and fauns commonly called incubi have often made wicked assaults upon women. Questions about the reproductive capabilities of the demons continued. 800 years later, Thomas Aquinas argued against the possibility of children being conceived by intercourse with demons. Still, if some are occasionally begotten from demons, it is not from the seed of such demons, nor from their assumed bodies, but from the seed of men taken for the purpose, as when the demon assumes first the form of a woman, and afterwards of a man. About 300 years later, King James in his dissertation titled Demonologie suggested that a devil would carry out two methods of impregnating women. The first, to steal the sperm out of a dead man and deliver it into a woman. If a demon could extract the semen quickly, the transportation of the substance could not be instantly transported to a female host, causing it to go cold. This explains his view that succubae and incubi were the same demonic entity, only to be described differently based on the sexes being conversed with. Being abused in such a way caused women at nunneries to be burned if they were found pregnant. The second method was the idea that a dead body could be possessed by a devil, causing it to rise and have sexual relations with others. This is similar to depictions of revenants or vampires and a spirit talking deceased corpse to cause some mischief. It became generally accepted that incubi and succubi were the same demon, able to switch between male and female forms. A succubus would be able to sleep with a man and collect his sperm. The succubus then transforms into an incubus and uses that seed on women. The spirit's offspring were often thought of as supernatural. Therefore, I understood right away that antipsychotic medicine wouldn't help me, but would help the demons pollute my breath of life further through the smell of chemical medication rather than the naturally scented herbal remedies I used and was learning to use along with my Buddhist meditation practice and Buddhist philosophical study as well as Buddhist bodily hygiene and diet. Because these demons attack the heart, the soul, the consciousness or psyche, and lastly the body of human beings, and chemical medication doesn't cure the heart, as in the heart of religious or spiritual faith. These demons steal the purity of our energies, as well as the light within the heart and the eyesight of victims. For example, King George III became blind during the final stages of his porphyria disease. So this is a serious situation that humanity is facing and has been facing for a long time. 
except that in the remote past, it was better understood and better cured than today. So we need to wake up to the truth about the real cure for such diseases. Because our younger generations, through depression, bipolar disorders, and schizophrenia, are slowly becoming blind, to put it simply. I myself, after the psychosis I suffered, couldn't see very well after the attack. When I started attending my art classes, my eyesight was as luminous, sharp, and precise as ever. I even realized that I was ambidextrous during the entry exam because I had never painted on such a large scale as on a canvas before and at one point my right hand became really tired and it was so painful that I had no choice but to use my left hand and to my amazement I realized that my drawing was even more precise with my left hand as if my sense of vision was better able at directing my representational drawing skill on the left side and on the right. Therefore, I understood that my eyes and hands were working in perfect coordination and more accurately than ever because I was determined at passing my exam. After the psychosis and my internment at La Clinique Saint-Jean, my eyesight was blurred, my eyes felt heavy and watery, I was constantly sleepy due to the antipsychotic medicine that I had had to take in the beginning, and I was totally unable to draw with nearly as much precision as a few months earlier. My hands were trembling when I was trying to draw anything, let alone straight lines, and on top of that, the weight I had gained in a very short period of time due to the antipsychotics, I thought. But today I know that it wasn't the antipsychotics, or maybe only partly, because eventually I gained as much as 20 kilograms in one year. I went from weighing 50 kilograms and being very light to 70 kilograms. It was the possession by the demons, I later realized, because I didn't recognize myself anymore, mentally nor physically, and it made it very difficult to be at ease with myself in my own body let alone to feel like I could be capable of any artistic endeavor. These demons pollute the smells of the food that you eat in order to penetrate your body. That's why they also act like parasites inside our bodies. Therefore, it is extremely important as well to be very careful about the food that you eat when you feel depressed or are diagnosed with suffering from schizophrenia or bipolar disorder and the likes. Avoiding meat and any type of flesh is crucial, preferring to them the lightest, freshest, purest, most organic diet, like the vegetarian or vegan diets. After the psychosis I suffered in Brussels, I thus went from a very lightweight and sharp, luminous, artistic and lively mind to a catatonic, large and heavy-bodied person, a slow, darkened and frightened mind, and I wasn't myself. I really couldn't recognize myself anymore. I was unable to draw even one straight line, when the year before I was drawing mandalas and perfect circles with the lightness, ease and joy of a butterfly, because representing perfect symmetry was a wonderful meditative exercise for my mind and body which I understood were also aligning to the symmetry of my mandala drawings.
and I drew several before going to Brussels. After the psychosis and my return to Africa, I felt like I was totally out of balance and symmetry, and too heavy to even be able to draw nor paint for a whole year afterwards. It was hell, simply. In conclusion, I want to add that the symptoms of the diagnosis of schizophrenia that I have had to endure, sometimes armed only with stoicism, not to be tempted to knock my head on my walls in order to stop the absolute perversion and stupidity of the demonic voices chaos, symptoms which, thank God, I eventually learned to transcend and which in truth are nothing more than the nightmarish, disgusting, painful and brutal, beyond my understanding, evil manifestations of the worst demonic attacks by the devil itself, bent on destroying all the light of the universal love within the innocent and immaculate heart and pure breath of life of a woman, no matter the color of her skin, a woman whose faith is as strong as it is ancient. And I believe that these demons' attacks on my person were so horrible and disgusting, also because I am a black or African woman today within our world's genetic hierarchy. It showed absolutely no limits to the hatred it used to hurt me. And I must emphasize that this demon has also used my menstruations since adolescence to drain me of my blood and energy through pains identical to having your entrails sliced up by the sharpest blades during several days and every single month, sometimes several times per month, and this menstrual pain has increased with time to the point where two years ago at the age of 43, I had to call an ambulance to bring me to the hospital to get an anti-pain shot because after withstanding this menstrual pain during the whole day, in the evening I could no longer stand it. And the really sad part is that the paramedics who brought me to the hospital, a young Quebecer woman and man, were laughing openly at the cries of despair I was unable to withhold because then my stoicism had abandoned me. It was just too painful and they were just laughing at me. I was half conscious because of the pain, but I will never forget their contempt and heartlessness. I don't know if it was contempt or racism, but they were just laughing at the deepest expression of absolute pain and helplessness of a woman's state of illness. I couldn't do much but try and repress my cries, which were coming out by themselves and essentially not from my own volition, knowing that I am a very strong woman. The cries were just coming out to help me breathe, I think, because I couldn't breathe anymore. It was too painful. It was a very big deal for me to have to call an ambulance for that reason, because I usually cure myself only with breathing exercises, herbal remedies, and lately, with crystal therapy, no matter the pain. But that time, I thought I was going to die from this menstrual pain. It was indescribable. 
and it lasted a whole day with no respite. Ironically, it is my very DNA which has enabled me to understand what was really happening to me in the workings of my brain through the universal light and love within my intelligence and therefore within my ability to think logically under the most stressful circumstances and find the most efficient remedy or weapon against Satan, to put it simply. That remedy is nothing but my breath of life, and breath of life in a spiritual perspective is to me what defines our DNA. Therefore, it is my mission to share my experience and strategy of war and survival against the worst evil through this very breath of life in my energy, in my voice, and in my speech. A survival strategy to the worst demonic attacks that I must share with humanity and even with the whole universe. In my understanding of the universality of breath and light, and therefore of love. Because I felt right away, when I realized what was happening to me, that if such a base, vile, hateful, perverse, frightening beyond reason and darker than hell, demon, because it has enjoyed showing itself to me in the most horrible, disgusting, vicious and sadistic ways, while I was clutching my teddy bear in my sleep often, if such a demon could attack the innocent heart of a little girl in her sleep, therefore the whole universe was in danger, because the very concept of innocent faith, stability and existence was at stake. And to me it is that very innocent stability which sustains what I call universal love, light and harmony which in turn constitute creation itself at its most fundamental levels. So the revelations in thought and the weapons of love, light and universal harmony that were given to me were channeled by that very heart that was under attack. Because it is that light and that love in my heart that Satan was trying to steal, pollute and even to rape. Therefore, I tell you that there is nothing other than faith to save us in such an unjust and blindfolded battle of war for the survival of universal love. And you have to become an angel to win. You really must transcend humanity's common understanding of death to win that battle. You have to become an ideal of love, a love at war because you're fighting against the worst idea of death as well. Death through rape by Satan and doom in the sewers of humanity's consciousness where you become the devil's sexual slave. But children are full of life and life at its purest state is love, light, harmony, imagination, wonder, hope, pure fiery energy, and the energy of all the elements in their most innocent and playful manifestations. It is this true magic in the heart of a child that makes it possible for the consciousness of a child to transcend death. And this is why I am still alive today. 
and I must say that I wonder sometimes why I had to wage that war. And the only answer I can come up with is that no one else but me could have won that war. Therefore, I cannot help but see myself as an angel, as pretentious as it may sound, because it was just too much for the consciousness of a child, fighting, surviving, withstanding, transcending, but thank heaven, breathing. Either you go crazy or you realize that you are an angel and that you have already won the war, that you just need to realize it. It will take the time that it will take, but you're already there, the universe is with you, and nothing is clearer than this truth. It's about assuming your responsibilities when you know that you have the energy to do it. I realize that I am sharing very intimate information about my understanding of the true causes for such mental and emotional disorders as schizophrenia, bipolarism, depression and the likes. My experience of these symptoms has been extremely difficult and painful for all my senses of perception and at all the levels of my consciousness through my heart, mind, body, and soul. These are very deep mental and emotional traumatisms that cannot be cured within our psyches just by taking antipsychotic pills. And this is why I must share my methods of understanding the real situation and my methods of spiritual healing simply because they work. I am still alive because I understand that the health of the body starts with the health of the heart, as in the spiritual heart of love, the health of the mind and the health of the soul as well. We can achieve this sense of health just through learning how to breathe better. Because breath of life is universal and carries universal cosmic energy from the universal consciousness, who energizes, guides and heals us, protecting us from any disease or attack on our energies. Today I am in good health, my eyesight is still luminous and sharp, I enjoy creating art more than ever, and I just want to share feelings of strength, hope, and resilience with all the children who feel lost, like I used to, because of these so-called mental diseases. That's why I must explain why love, light, and universal harmony are our best allies in that battle against the psychic demons that cause the depression that darkens and burdens love, light and universal harmony through nightmares in the hearts of innocent children while they sleep. And now, so that you may heal the beautiful, powerful, shiny wings of all your dreams 
and take flight in the gentle roses, blues, purples and golden yellows of the dawn in the infinite thousand-petaled lotus flower of the most poetic sky that your radiant heart can paint for you? I will tell you about the life of the Renaissance artist Leonardo da Vinci and his study on the flight of birds. Leonardo di Ser Piero da Vinci, born on the 15th of April 1452, who passed away on the 2nd of May 1519, was an Italian polymath of the High Renaissance who was active as a painter, draftsman, engineer, scientist, theorist, sculptor, and architect. While his fame initially rested on his achievements as a painter, he also became known for his notebooks, in which he made drawings and notes on a variety of subjects, including anatomy, astronomy, botany, cartography, painting, and paleontology. Leonardo's genius epitomized the Renaissance humanist ideal, and his collective works compose a contribution to later generations of artists, matched only by that of his younger contemporary, Michelangelo di Lodovico Buonarroti Simoni. Born out of wedlock to a successful notary and a lower-class woman, in or near Vinci, a city in the Italian region of Tuscany, and commune of the metropolitan city of Florence, he was educated in Florence by the Italian painter and sculptor Andrea del Verrocchio. He began his career in the city, but then spent much time in the service of Ludovico Sforza in Milan. Later he worked in Florence and Milan again, as well as briefly in Rome all the while attracting a large following of imitators and students. Upon the invitation of Francis I, François Ier, King of France from 1515 to 1547, Leonardo spent the last three years of his life in France, where he passed away in 1519. Since then, there has not been a time where his achievements Diverse interests, personal life, and empirical thinking have failed to incite interest and admiration, making him a frequent namesake and subject in culture. Leonardo is among the greatest painters in the history of art and is often credited as the founder of the High Renaissance. Despite having many lost works and less than 25 attributed major works, including numerous unfinished works, he created some of the most influential paintings in Western art. His magnum opus, the Mona Lisa, is his best-known work and often regarded as the world's most famous painting. The Last Supper is the most reproduced religious painting of all time, and his Vitruvian Man drawing and Salvatore Mundi painting are also regarded as cultural icons. Revered for his technological ingenuity, he conceptualized flying machines, 
a type of armored fighting vehicle, concentrated solar power, an adding machine, and the double hull. Relatively few of his designs were constructed or even feasible during his lifetime, as the modern scientific approaches to metallurgy and engineering were only in their infancy during the Renaissance. Some of his smaller inventions, however, entered the world of manufacturing and heralded, such as an automated bobbin, winder, and a machine for testing the tensile strength of wire. He made substantial discoveries in anatomy, civil engineering, hydrodynamics, geology, optics, and tribology. But he did not publish his findings and they had little to no direct influence on subsequent science. Engineering and Inventions During his lifetime, Leonardo was also valued as an engineer, with the same rational and analytical approach that moved him to represent the human body and to investigate anatomy. Leonardo studied and designed many machines and devices. He drew their anatomy with unparalleled mastery, producing the first form of the modern technical drawing, including a perfected exploded view technique to represent internal components. Those studies and projects collected in his codices fill more than 5,000 pages. In a letter of 1482 to the Lord of Milan, Ludovico il Moro, he wrote that he could create all sorts of machines, both for the protection of a city and for a siege. When he fled from Milan to Venice in 1499, he found employment as an engineer and devised a system of movable barricades to protect the city from attack. In 1502, he created a scheme for diverting the flow of the Arno River, a project on which Niccolò Machiavelli also worked. He continued to contemplate the canalization of Lombardy's plains while in Louis XII's company and of the Loire and its tributaries in the company of Francis I. Leonardo's journals include a vast number of inventions. They include musical instruments, a mechanical knight, hydraulic pumps, reversible crank mechanisms, thinned mortar shells, and a steam cannon. However, Leonardo was fascinated by the phenomenon of flight for much of his life, producing many studies including a codex on the flight of birds, circa 1505, as well as plans for several flying machines such as a flapping ornithopter and a machine with a helical rotor. A 2003 documentary by British television station Channel 4 entitled Leonardo's Dream Machines, various designs by Leonardo, such as a parachute and a giant crossbow, were interpreted and constructed. Some of these designs proved successful, whilst others fared less well when tested. Research performed by Mark van den Broek revealed older prototypes for more than 100 inventions that are ascribed to Leonardo.
Similarities between Leonardo's illustrations and drawings from the Middle Ages and from ancient Greece and Rome, the Chinese and Persian empires and Egypt, suggest that a large portion of Leonardo's inventions had been conceived before his lifetime. Leonardo's innovation was to combine different functions from existing drafts and set them into scenes that illustrated their utility. By reconstituting technical inventions, he created something new. In his notebooks, Leonardo first stated the laws of sliding friction in 1493. His inspiration for investigating friction came about in part from his study of perpetual motion, which he correctly concluded was not possible. His results were never published and the friction laws were not rediscovered until 1699 by Guillaume Amanton, with whose name they are now usually associated. For this contribution, Leonardo was named the first of the 23 men of tribology by Duncan Dawson. Leonardo da Vinci's Codex on the Flight of Birds The Codex on the Flight of Birds is a relatively short codex from circa 1505 by Leonardo da Vinci. It comprises 18 folios and measures 21 by 15 centimeters. Now held at the Royal Library of Turin, the Codex begins with an examination of the flight behavior of birds and proposes mechanisms for flight by machines. Leonardo constructed a number of these machines and attempted to launch them from a hill near Florence. However, his efforts failed. In the Codex, Leonardo notes for the first time that the center of gravity of a flying bird does not coincide with its center of pressure. The front page is entitled On Casting Medals. The first paragraph gives a brief recipe that consists of emery, nitric acid, iron filings, vinegar, ashes of walnut leaves, and finally ground straw ash. The second paragraph tells of the process of crushing diamonds into diamond powder and separating the powder from lead. The last paragraph explains how to crush large crystals into smaller crystals and how to grind, purify, and color enamel. The first page in folio 1 contains 11 diagrams with captions for each that relate to gravity, density, balance, and oscillations. The next page contains 4 diagrams and a lengthy paragraph on velocity and the differences in movement along the arc and chord of part of a circle. Folio 2 contains two images on each of the two pages, along with commentary on the following. Gravity, powder amount versus shot diameter, center of gravity for pyramids, and round balances. 
Folio 3 contains 10 drawings and commentary on the following Science of Machines, Balances, Energy and Circular Motion. Folio 4 contains 9 diagrams and a page of text on gravity and its effect on different shapes connected together on a balance. The back page of this folio has Leonardo's first reference to birds and his explanation on how they fly. Folio 5 contains 6 diagrams and commentary on birds and flight. Leonardo starts Folio 5 by stating that if a man were to be in a flying machine, nothing should get in his way from the waist up, so that he can balance himself as one does in a boat. He goes on to write on how a bird's direction will change with the direction of the wind. A bird which is going in a straight line that comes into a cross breeze at a perpendicular angle will now be heading in a direction that is in between the two end points of each direction. He ends the first page by explaining that if a bird in a descent wants to turn left or right, then it will lower the wing on the side of the direction it wants to turn. Birds can gain altitude, as stated by Leonardo, by raising the shoulders and beating the tips of the wings towards itself, thus condensing the air that stands between the tips of its wings and itself. He also describes the flight of a kite as seeking a wind current. When the winds are high, one will see the bird very high in the sky. But when the winds are low, the bird stays closer to the ground. Leonardo describes how a bird rests in the air, after flapping its wings to gain altitude, by gliding downward to the ground. Folio 6 contains multiple diagrams of birds flying and their bone structure, and all of the commentary is on flight and how birds fly the way they do. Leonardo starts by describing how a bird ascends or descends in different wind conditions. Here is a summary. How birds fly depending on wind direction based on Leonardo's on the flight of birds. If the wind direction is a headwind, the ascent will be over the wind with the wind on the breast. The descent will be under the wind, with the wind on the back. If the wind direction is a left wind, the ascent will be with the left wing under the wind, the descent as well. If the wind direction is a tail wind, the ascent will be under the wind. This is debatable according to Leonardo. Leonardo states that the only way for a bird to ascend when in a tailwind is for the bird, at its peak ascent, to turn in a semicircle and face the wind to continue its ascension in the opposite direction. Leonardo explains that a bird should fly above the clouds to prevent its wings from getting wet and to avoid the circular air patterns 
that come from mountainous terrain. If a bird flies above the clouds and somehow gets turned over, then it should have plenty of time to turn itself back over by either falling immediately with the wing tip downwind or lowering the opposite wing to below halfway. He also comments on the rib structure of a bird and theorizes which ribs are the most useful. He ends folio 6 by stating that he needs to do more practical tests on the ribs of birds. Folio 7 contains a very detailed diagram of either the tip of a bird's wing or the wing of a possible flying machine along with five more diagrams of birds in flight. Leonardo's writings on flying machines starts here and he compares his views with the notes he has already taken on the flight of birds. He states that the bird machine must attain a high altitude in case it were to turn over so as to have enough time to right itself. He notes that the framework needs to be strong with leather laces and raw silk for the ribs. He also adds that there should not be any metal in the machine because of its tendency to wear or break under stress. He further develops his ideas about his flying machine by defining the nerve of the machine. It was to be made from a thick ribbon of tanned leather that would spread the wing in flight. He was going to use this same framework in the nerves above and below this one for safety reasons. The rest of Folio 7 is Leonardo's notes and instructions on how to fly his machine like a bird. Here is a quick summary of various flight situations Leonardo perceives and their corresponding flight maneuvers called today dynamic soaring, controlled by piloting directional controls. If a situation involves the wingtip turned toward the wind, Leonardo notes that this wing must be put above or below the wind along with the side of the tail and the rudder of the wing's humerus or direction. While descending, the side nearest to the center of gravity will descend first. While descending, the heavier part of the machine will be in front of the geometric center. While airborne, without wing flapping and without assistance from the wind, the machine's geometric center and center of gravity correspond to each other. While descending, the heavier part of the machine will never be equal to or higher than the lighter part. While descending tail first, if the tail rotates backward, the machine will regain balance. If the tail rotates forward, the machine will flip over. While stably flying, if the resistance from the wing is moved behind the center of gravity, the machine will descend head first. While stably flying, if the resistance from the wing is moved in front of the center of gravity, 
the machine will descend tail first. Leonardo's eighth folio contains 11 diagrams of birds flying and more instructions for his flying machine. Here is a quick summary of the first half of folio 8. If a situation involves the wing and belly of the machine too far above the wind, Leonardo notes that the opposite wing should be lowered to be righted by the wind. If the wing and belly of the machine are too far below the wind, the opposite wing needs to be raised to be righted by the wind as long as the lifted wing is less slanted than the lower wing. If the wing and belly of the machine are too far below the wind, the opposite wing needs to be raised in favor of the wind to straighten the machine. If the wing and back of the machine are too far below the wind, the opposite wing needs to be raised and sheltered from the wind to straighten the machine. If the back of the machine is to the wind, the tail must be below the wind. If the back of the machine is below the wind, the tail must be above the wind. Leonardo goes on to write that if the bird machine is above the wind but turning into the wind, it must lower its tail otherwise it will overturn. He states that the action of lowering the tail to be less susceptible to wind in this situation will make it impossible for the bird machine to be overturned. He goes on to prove this by referencing the elements of machinery. Afterwards, he writes on the compression of air due to the wings, and he states that the entire length of the wing is not used in the compression of air in front of the wing. To prove this, he asks readers to examine bird wings for themselves and to check the larger spacing in between feathers that are not as large. Folio 9 contains another 12 diagrams of birds in flight and structure framework. The contents of folios 10 to 18 are not included in the Wikipedia article I have used. Unfortunately. On a rare loan from the Biblioteca Reale Museum in Turin, Italy, the original 18-page Da Vinci Codex on the flight of birds was displayed in the United States National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. for 40 days, starting on September 13, 2013. When I was 14 years old and living in the city of Bethesda, in the state of Maryland, in the USA, I saw Charles Lindbergh's plane, The Spirit of St. Louis, at the United States National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. I was happy to visit this museum then, but it is only today that I realize how much it widened my horizon. 
Science and Inventions Leonardo's approach to science was observational. He tried to understand a phenomenon by describing and depicting it in utmost detail and did not emphasize experiments or theoretical explanation. Since he lacked formal education in Latin and mathematics, contemporary scholars mostly ignored Leonardo the scientist although he did teach himself Latin. His keen observations in many areas were noted, such as when he wrote, Il sole non si muove, the sun does not move. In the 1490s, he studied mathematics under Luca Pacioli and prepared a series of drawings of regular solids in a skeletal form to be engraved as plates for Pacioli's book Divina Proporzione, published in 1509. While living in Milan, he studied light from the summit of Monte Rosa. Scientific writings in his notebook on fossils have been considered as influential on early paleontology. Anatomy and Physiology Leonardo started his study in the anatomy of the human body under the apprenticeship of Verrocchio, who demanded that his students develop a deep knowledge of the subject. As an artist, he quickly became master of topographic anatomy, drawing many studies of muscles, tendons, and other visible anatomical features. As a successful artist, Leonardo was given permission to dissect human corpses at the hospital of Santa Maria Nuova in Florence, and later at hospitals in Milan and Rome. From 1510 to 1511, he collaborated in his studies with the doctor Marcantonio della Torre. Leonardo made over 240 detailed drawings and wrote about 13,000 words toward a treatise on anatomy. Only a small amount of the material on anatomy was published in Leonardo's treatise on painting. During the time that Melzi was ordering the material into chapters for publication, they were examined by a number of anatomists and artists, including Vasari, Cellini, and Albrecht Dürer, who made a number of drawings from them. Leonardo also closely observed and recorded the effects of age and of human emotion on the physiology. Studying in particular the effects of rage, he drew many figures who had significant facial deformities or signs of illness. Leonardo also studied and drew the anatomy of many animals, dissecting cows, birds, monkeys, bears, and frogs, and comparing in his drawings their anatomical structure with that of humans. He also made a number of studies of horses. Leonardo da Vinci's discovery of the dynamic soaring by birds in wind shear is an article written by Dr. Philip L. Richardson and published on October 3, 2018 on the website 
royalsocietypublishing.org Dr. Philip L. Richardson is a senior scientist, emeritus physical oceanography professor at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts, United States of America. His article explains, Although Leonardo da Vinci, 1452-1519, is well known to have studied bird flight, few people realize that he was the first to document flight maneuvers, now called dynamic soaring. Birds use these maneuvers to extract energy from the gradient of wind velocity, wind shear, for sustained flight. In his manuscript E, circa 1513-1515, Leonardo described land birds performing flight maneuvers that match those of albatrosses and other seabirds when they are engaged in dynamic soaring over the ocean. His description predates by almost 400 years the first generally accepted explanation of the physics of this soaring technique by Lord Rayleigh in 1883. Leonardo's early description of dynamic soaring is one of his major aerodynamic discoveries. Introduction most medium and large albatrosses exploit the increase of wind speed with height above the ocean surface for very long flight. Wandering albatrosses even fly around the world in the southern ocean with minimal flapping of their wings. The exploitation of the gradient of wind velocity wind shear to extract energy for sustained soaring is the definition of dynamic soaring. Wind shear is the key to dynamic soaring of albatrosses, radio-controlled gliders, and unmanned aerial vehicles. Recently, I discovered that over 500 years ago, Leonardo da Vinci described the dynamic soaring maneuver in his sketches and notes. Because of their importance to the history of aerodynamics, I would like to describe Leonardo's findings below. Dynamic soaring birds fly in a distinctive flight maneuver that is easy to recognize for those familiar with the flight of wandering albatrosses. The maneuver typically has four phases, starting with flight near the ocean surface, a bird, one, turns into the wind, two, climbs upwind across the wind shear layer, three, turns downwind, and four, descends downwind across the wind shear layer, ending near the surface and headed in the original direction. Shown in figure 1. A crosswind flight typically consists of a series of approximately 90 degrees turns and 45 degrees diagonal climbs and descents 
relative to the across wind direction. Upwind and downwind flight can be achieved by adjusting the directions of the phases like a tacking sailboat. Tacking is a sailing maneuver by which a sailing vessel, whose desired course is into the wind, turns its bow toward and through the wind so that the direction from which the wind blows changes from one side of the boat to the other, allowing progress in the desired direction. In figure 1, a schematic diagram shows an albatross flying in an across wind direction using an S-shaped dynamic soaring maneuver. The albatross is soaring through a vertical profile of mean wind velocity. The bird extracts energy from the wind by climbing headed upwind, turning downwind and descending headed downwind. Significant waves are typically observed in the southern ocean. Wind-wave interactions cause a more complicated instantaneous wind field than that plotted here. Albatrosses appear to efficiently exploit instantaneous in situ winds and waves in dynamic soaring. Mechanical energy, defined to be the sum of kinetic energy relative to the air and potential energy relative to the earth, is gained during a bird's climb and descent across the windshield layer. Since the beginning and ending airspeed and altitude of a dynamic soaring maneuver are unchanged, there is no net gain in mechanical energy. Drag reduces the energy gained in crossing the shear layer, resulting in energy-neutral flight. Leonardo began to study bird flight when he was trying to develop human-powered flying machines. He paid particular attention to soaring birds in order to learn how they fly without flapping their wings. His manuscripts contain over 500 sketches of birds, bird flight and devices for human flight. In order to interpret his observations of soaring birds, he studied the movement of air and water and wrote, in order to give the true science of the motion of birds within the air, it is necessary first to give the science of the winds, which we shall prove by means of the motions of water within itself. And this perceptible science will become a model for arriving at the knowledge of flying creatures within the air and the wind. Although Leonardo is recognized for his remarkable studies of aerodynamics, few people realize that he was the first person to document dynamic soaring. The two most detailed sketches of dynamic soaring flight in his manuscript E look like familiar dynamic soaring maneuvers of albatrosses and notes add confirming details. These sketches and notes appear to be the first ones in existence concerning dynamic soaring maneuvers. Additional sketches show birds climbing vertically using both updrafts and dynamic soaring. A few examples are included here to show differences between these trajectories. Methods 
I became interested in Leonardo's description of soaring birds when I read a paper by P. Lissemann, who mentioned that Leonardo had marveled at the birds' ingenuity in using air movements to assist their flight, as described by D. Laurenza. I was curious to find out if Leonardo had explained that birds could soar using energy gained from wind shear. If so, it would have been a major aerodynamic discovery and would push back the known date of the discovery by hundreds of years. I started by reading Leonardo's well-known codex on the flight of birds, circa 1505, which had been on exhibit at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in 2013, with a translation and sketches available online. I then read Laurenza's book and found it to be a good introduction to Leonardo's work on bird flight, with many illustrations about soaring from various manuscripts. Most importantly, it included two key sketches from Leonardo's manuscript, circa 1513 to 1515, which closely resembled dynamic soaring trajectories. However, Laurenza did not mention Leonardo's notes accompanying the two sketches and did not interpret them as dynamic soaring. In order to investigate the possible dynamic soaring sketches in manuscript E, I studied two English translations of Leonardo's manuscripts, one by J. Venerella and the other by E. McCurdy. McCurdy helpfully collected all the sections on bird flight and placed them together in a chapter entitled Flight, which includes translations of 158 pages of 13 different manuscripts, including Manuscript E. Venerella recently translated manuscripts A to M, which are located in the Bibliothèque of the Institut de France in Paris. Mainly, I have used his translation of Manuscript E here. The translations did not include images of Leonardo's sketches, which made them difficult to investigate. But John Venerella kindly provided a link to a website that posted facsimiles of the manuscripts along with Leonardo's handwritten notes transcribed into printed Italian. This made it fairly easy to compare English translations of Leonardo's notes while viewing images of the associated sketches. Most of Leonardo's original recorded observations of bird flight appear to have been made near Florence around 1500 to 1506. Manuscript E, which is dedicated to bird flight and the science of winds, was compiled later, circa 1513 to 1515 when Leonardo was living in Rome. Manuscript E provides the most convincing evidence of dynamic soaring. The Codex Atlanticus, which contains folios from different periods, including circa 1503 to 1506, contains some very similar notes about bird flight as those given in Manuscript E and the Codex on the Flight of Birds. 
I examined manuscript E at the Institute de France and was struck by both the small size of this pocket notebook, roughly 4 inches by 6 inches, perhaps useful for field studies, and Leonardo's small, carefully drawn, detailed sketches. Over the years, I spent many hours observing albatrosses engaged in dynamic soaring over the ocean, including wandering, black-broad, grey-headed, sooty and light-mantled sooty albatrosses. I compared my observed maneuvers of albatrosses to Leonardo's sketches and notes. It became clearly apparent that Leonardo had accurately sketched and described dynamic soaring maneuvers of birds. Recent high-resolution trajectories of albatrosses, measured by GPS, also tend to confirm Leonardo's descriptions. I investigated early explanations of dynamic soaring in order to place Leonardo's knowledge of the physics of this type of flight in a historical context. I also read several papers and books that describe Leonardo's studies of aerodynamics and bird flight, but none mentioned dynamic soaring or identified his sketches and descriptions as illustrating dynamic soaring maneuvers. Brief History of Dynamic Soaring To the best of my knowledge, before Leonardo's work, no aerodynamic analysis of bird flight existed. For example, R. Giacomelli says that, according to the science of Aristotle's time, birds flew because they had the property of flight. Aristotle wrote that birds had their support on air as ships have theirs on water. Leonardo's observations, sketches and descriptions of bird flight were a major step forward in the study of aerodynamics. His aerodynamic concepts were amazingly advanced for the time. He has become recognized as a genius for his art and his notebooks about science and engineering. Some major contributions are the law of continuity, his observations and sketches of fluid flow patterns, the statement that air resistance is directly proportional to the area of the body, the concept of streamlining a body to reduce drag, and the statement of the wind tunnel principle that aerodynamic results are the same whether a body moves through stationary air or the air flows past a stationary body. Curiously, historians of aerodynamics seem to be unaware of Leonardo's discovery of the aerodynamic flight maneuver that birds use for dynamic soaring. I have not found any detailed studies of Leonardo's description of dynamic soaring. Lord Rayleigh is generally accepted as being the first person to realistically explain how a bird could gain energy from wind shear for sustained soaring. In his 1883 paper, he assumed a two-layer wind step model in which the wind speed increased by 50 knots west in speed measurement vertically across the step. 
A dragless bird crossing the steppe headed upwind at a shallow angle with the horizon would gain airspeed of 50 knots west and descending across the steppe headed downwind would gain another 50 knots, resulting in a net gain of 100 knots west in a circle. If the wind speed increased by 5 meters a second across the steppe, a bird could increase its airspeed in a circle by 10 meters a second. When this increase of airspeed equals the loss of airspeed due to drag, then a bird can soar for long times and distances. Rayleigh noted that this would also be true for a continuous increase of wind speed with height. If wind shear were sufficiently large, a bird could use the excess airspeed gained to increase altitude. Rayleigh did not call the maneuver dynamic soaring, but Manchester did later, and the term has since become common usage. Dynamic soaring will be used here to mean soaring by extracting energy from wind shear, noting that neither Leonardo, Rayleigh, nor some others used this term. Rayleigh's conceptual model of dynamic soaring was stimulated by observations of several kinds of birds, vultures, pelicans, and adjutants, that spiraled upward in trajectories tilted downwind by wind as described by S. E. Peel. Rayleigh investigated wind shear as a source of energy for this type of soaring. Most observers of upward spiraling flight conclude that it exploits ascending thermals. A thermal is a rising mass of buoyant air, a convective current in the atmosphere that transfers heat energy vertically, which raises the issue about how relevant dynamic soaring is to this type of flight at heights where wind shear is often not large. In 1883, Rayleigh did not know how large wind shear needed to be to support bird soaring. Subsequent observations would indicate that most dynamic soaring of birds is located in strong shear layers near ocean and land surfaces, not at great altitudes. In 1889, A.C. Baines described the typical flight maneuver of albatrosses and concluded that they gained energy for soaring from the strong wind shear located near the ocean surface much as described by Rayleigh for birds at higher altitudes. Baines found that an albatross could gain airspeed in the maneuver, amounting to approximately two times the difference of wind speed between the ocean surface and the height of the bird's upper turn. He described the upwind climb as follows. A bird's ascent against the wind may be compared with the ascent of a particle up an incline. While the incline itself is accelerated in a horizontal direction opposite to that of the particle's motion, thereby enabling it to reach a height greater than that due to the initial velocity. The incline analogy is mentioned because Leonardo used a similar wedge analogy, but not an accelerated wedge. 
which would be appropriate in Windshire. Shortly after reading Bain's paper, Rayleigh published a note acknowledging Bain's observations and said, There seems little reason to doubt that the true explanation of the flight of the albatross has been arrived at. In the case of the pelican soaring to a great elevation, it is less easy to understand how the difference in horizontal velocity can be sufficient. In 1900, Rayleigh summarized bird soaring as part of a review of the mechanical principles of flight. This was an important step because he was one of the few respected scientists promoting human flight in those days. Rayleigh included a discussion of one dynamic soaring and said that it probably explained much of the sailing flight of albatrosses and seabirds, but that it was doubtful whether wind shear at considerable elevation in the atmosphere was sufficient to allow a bird to maintain his position without flapping his wings. Two, upward soaring in ascending air, both in updrafts caused by thermals and wind striking sloping land and being deflected upwards. And three, soaring in wind gust, concluding that it is quite possible for a bird moving in a very natural manner against a strong and variable wind to maintain itself over the ground without working its wings. He referred to the observations of E. C. Huffaker, who had recorded many examples of vultures soaring in thermals, rising from the ground when it was strongly heated by the sun. Rayleigh also mentioned Huffaker's observations of birds soaring against a strong and variable wind and S.P. Langley's measurements of the gustiness of the wind which a bird could exploit to gain energy for soaring. Over the years, there has been a debate about whether the main source of energy for albatross soaring is updrafts over waves or wind shear near the sea surface. Some scientists originally favoring updrafts changed sides in the argument to favor wind shear. Dynamic soaring has now been accurately modeled and there appears to be a consensus that it explains most albatross soaring, at least in the windy southern ocean. An exception to this is in low winds and large waves, when wave-forced updrafts can provide sufficient energy for sustained soaring, as mentioned by W. Froud. Albatrosses probably also extract energy from wind gusts using dynamic soaring maneuvers because wind gusts at low altitudes include increased wind shear. Some medium-sized and smaller albatrosses and other seabirds appear to use alternating periods of flapping and gliding, flap gliding, to augment the energy obtained from wind shear and updrafts over waves, especially in low winds. The flight of wandering albatrosses measured by GPS has been analyzed relative to the speed and direction of the wind and plotted in the form of a flight polar diagram for different wind speeds. 
Results look similar to flight polar diagrams generated with numerical models of dynamic soaring gliders. These data and simulations tend to show increasing ground speeds with increasing wind speeds in all directions relative to the wind direction except directly upwind. A major difference is that in their preferred across wind direction, wandering albatrosses reach a maximum flight speed of around 20 meters per second in wind speeds greater than around 10 meters per second reference to a height of 5 meters, whereas simulated across wind flight speeds tend to continue to increase in increasing wind speed depending on the specific model assumptions. Wandering albatrosses probably limit their maximum flight speed to around 20 meters per second in order to keep the total acceleration and wing loading below the strength of their wings. Albatross-sized radio-controlled gliders have been observed to increase their dynamic soaring speeds to over 500 miles per hour, 224 meters per second, using wind shear layers generated by fast wind blowing over mountain ridges. The accelerations of the gliders in fast dynamic soaring maneuvers reach around 100 times gravity, much too great for birds. The period of the fast radio-controlled glider circular loops is around 2 to 3 seconds. The frequent crossings of strong separated shear layers account for the extremely fast flight speeds. Leonardo's description of horizontal dynamic soaring flight. Leonardo sketched an across-wind dynamic soaring maneuver by a small flock of migrating birds, as shown in figure 2. He mentioned thrushes and other similar birds that fly in droves using the undulating maneuver shown in the figure. Leonardo described the soaring flight maneuver as follows. When it happens that birds flying in flocks make long journeys, and the wind, by chance, strikes them on the side, these receive a great favor in their flying. And this is because the flying is done by bounds, meaning undulations, and without the aid of the wings, meaning no flapping, since their incident motion, meaning descent, is made beneath the wind, meaning beneath the course of the wind, with their wings somewhat narrowed and along the direction of the destined journey. But the reflected motion, meaning climb, is made above the wind, meaning above the course of the wind, and with the wings opened, it rises upward, against the approach of the wind, and so this wind penetrates beneath the bird, lifting it towards the sky, like a wedge that penetrates under a heavy object placed on top of it. For this reason, birds that have been raised to their proper height, which is equal in the beginning to the incident motion, meaning descent, these turn with their front toward their original path, 
always recommencing toward the path of their incident motion, meaning descent, and the reflected motions, meaning climbs, are always made against the wind. In figure 2, Leonardo's plan view sketch, illustrating northward across wind dynamic soaring from right to left, of a flock of four birds along an undulating flight path shows straight lines indicating the direction of the horizontal wind, which is blowing westward from top to bottom of the page from Leonardo's notes. The four phases of a typical dynamic soaring maneuver mentioned above can be identified starting from the right side with the birds climbing headed upwind and upward out of the page. The phases are described in slightly different terms in Leonardo's notes, which are written from right to left as can be seen using a mirror or a flip horizontal computer command. The sketch and notes reveal that Leonardo was describing a flight maneuver very similar to the documented dynamic soaring flight maneuver of albatrosses in figure 1. Since these birds tend to favor a crosswind soaring, figure 2 is highly relevant. Leonardo appears to be the discoverer of the dynamic soaring maneuver. Although he did not mention wind speeds or the height of the birds above land, the implication is that there was sufficient wind since the birds' trajectories demanded. In Leonardo's sketch of downwind dynamic soaring as shown in figure 3, the fastest dynamic soaring ground speeds of wandering albatrosses tend to be located in the diagonal downwind direction. This is because the birds' fastest speed through the air is in the across wind direction and downwind leeway is combined with airspeed, which results in fast ground speeds. Therefore, Leonardo's sketches of a crosswind and downwind soaring are typical examples of fast migrating flight. Both sketches show northward flight, which is consistent with migration in the spring. He did not mention the species of the bird in figure 3, but he did mention various birds in his manuscripts, such as a cortone, crane, crow, eagle, fieldfare, kite, lark, pelican, sparrow, swallow, and thrush. The only bird he mentions with a place and date is a cortone he saw on his way to Fiesole, near Florence, on March the 14th, 1505. In figure 3, Leonardo's plan view sketch illustrates downwind dynamic soaring flight from right to left. The straight lines indicate the northward direction of the horizontal wind blowing from right to left. Starting on the right, with a downwind descent, the trajectory matches the four phases mentioned above and agrees with documented dynamic soaring maneuvers, but is slightly different from that in figure 2 for a crosswind flight. Climbing is upward, out of the page. 
Leonardo's notes were used to interpret the wind direction and soaring maneuver. Leonardo mentioned that deflected motion climb is always made against the wind. Incident motion descent is made along the direction of the wind, and the conjunction of the incident motion with the reflected motion is nearly always perpendicular. This is interpreted to mean that the general direction of the descent is approximately perpendicular to the general direction of the climb. Leonardo's comment tends to agree with recent high-resolution trajectories of albatrosses soaring across wind measured by GPS. One noticeable difference between GPS trajectories of albatrosses and those of Leonardo's birds is that the upper turn is much sharper than the lower turn in both figures 2 and 3, which implies that the airspeed is significantly slower in the upper turn than the lower one. Albatross trajectories tend to look more symmetrical. This difference is probably due to the faster gliding cruise airspeed, approximately 16 meters per second, of the wandering albatross, coinciding with a larger maximum glide ratio of 21.2 meters per second, compared to the typical lower values of land birds. A bird with a large cruise speed and a large glide ratio has better aerodynamic performance and is able to glide faster and farther, starting from the same altitude, than a bird with smaller quantities. This is beneficial for dynamic soaring. Leonardo offered the analogy of a moving wedge to explain how head wind lifts a climbing bird. If one assumes that a climbing bird encounters an increase of wind speed with altitude, like the wind step Rayleigh described, then the wedge analogy would tend to agree with dynamic soaring. However, Leonardo did not mention an increase of wind speed with altitude in his notes about the dynamic soaring sketches, which implies that he might not have recognized it as being important to soaring. Without wind shear or wind gusts, the wedge analogy does not work, dynamically because there would not be an energy source to counter-drag and maintain a bird's altitude. In addition, the wedge analogy does not account for the second increase in airspeed mentioned by Rayleigh that is obtained in a downwind descent across the wind step. Leonardo did recognize that there was an increase of wind speed with altitude, wind shear. Birds always fly low when the course of the wind is contrary to their path, and this teaches us how the wind is more powerful at a height than low down. Obviously, the birds that actually used dynamic soaring for long-range flight perceived wind shear. Leonardo described the dynamic soaring of land birds, not sea birds. In order to compare his descriptions with modern ones, 
I searched through the literature and asked various experts about bird flight for information. I found references to the dynamic soaring of swallows, gray-faced buzzard eagles, and Chinese sparrow hawks, among other unnamed species, and of albatrosses and gulls' dynamic soaring over flat land. I also asked two expert pilots of radio-controlled gliders, Chris Bosley and Spencer Leesenby, who frequently power their gliders with dynamic soaring using windshield layers formed near ridges and hills. Leesenby presently holds the unofficial radio-controlled glider speed record of 545 miles per hour, 244 meters per second achieved by dynamic soaring, an albatross-sized glider near Bird Springs, California. Bosley and Lissenby told me that they often see Swift's dynamic soaring along the same ridges used by radio-controlled gliders, the Swifts occasionally coming close enough to the glider pilots that they can clearly see them and hear the sound as the swift passed through the windshield layer. They have also seen dynamic soaring crows, ravens, falcons, and vultures. Vultures were observed to exploit updrafts on the windward side of ridges to use dynamic soaring over and downwind of the ridges and updrafts in thermals. The tendency is for birds to use dynamic soaring when wind is strong and thermal soaring when the wind is weak, especially during the day, when the sun hits land and thermals are strong. It seems possible that Leonardo's sketches are of birds exploiting wind shear caused by interactions of wind and land features and the resulting detached shear layers similar to the birds observed by pilots of radio-controlled gliders. Birds climbing in updrafts. Leonardo sketched and described two method birds used to soar upward in ascending wind currents. The first occurs when wind strikes the steep sides of mountains or cliffs of the sea and is deflected upward, causing ascending currents which can carry birds upward and with which they can maintain their altitude while they head into the wind, as shown in figure 4. The second method is when a bird spirals upward in a column of ascending air, like a thermal, although Leonardo did not mention warm air rising, as shown in figure 5. Today, this kind of soaring in an updraft is often referred to as static soaring, the trajectory in figure 5 is different from climbing trajectories in wind shear. In figure 4, Leonardo's sketch of winds encountering vertical cliffs and being deflected upward shows that birds are supported by the ascending air. In figure 5, Leonardo's sketch of a bird ascending in what are interpreted to be two thermals shows that the bird circles upward as wind blows from right to left, tilting the upward trajectory in a downwind direction. 
After being displaced downwind, the bird descends heading into the wind towards its origin and starts climbing in a second upward trajectory. Leonardo's note accompanying his sketch in figure 5 is, when the bird rises in circles above the wind without beating its wings, using the ascending currents, it will be carried far from the area to which it wishes to return, even without beating its wings. Then it will turn its head in favor of the wind, coming in with an inclination to the wind, losing lots of height, until it arrives above the place where it wants to return. Birds climbing using vertical shear of horizontal wind. Leonardo sketched birds climbing using dynamic soaring in figures 6 and 7 and added descriptive notes. Both trajectories are interpreted to show flight in an average upward direction. Below the sketch shown in figure 6, Leonardo wrote, When the bird, through the favor of the wind, rises without beating its wings and makes circular motion, and when he shows its tail to the origin of the wind, this is driven by two powers, of which the one is that of the wind, which strikes it in the concavity under its wings. The other is the heaviness of the bird, which descends in composite obliquity, and by this acquired velocity, it occurs that when it is turned with its breast against the coming of the wind, this wind goes beneath the bird like a wedge lifting a weight upward, and thus the bird makes its reflected motion, meaning its climb, considerably higher than the beginning of the incident motion, meaning its descent, and this is the true reason that birds rise without beating their wings. In figure 6, flight trajectory is interpreted to show upward dynamic soaring by alternating longer upwind climbs and shorter downwind descents, connected by turns to the right and left. The viewer of the upper sketch is interpreted to be facing into the wind. The lower sketch illustrates the breast against the coming of the wind, maneuver for wind blowing from right to left. In figure 7, flight trajectory is interpreted to show upward dynamic soaring by alternating upwind climbs and downwind descents with alternating turns to the left and right. The viewer is interpreted to be facing into the wind. Adjacent to the sketch shown in figure 7, Leonardo wrote, This is the way in which the bird rises high, without the need to beat their wings and making circular trajectories. The remaining part of this circle is completed with the thrust of the wind, by upward movement, always with one of the wings lowered and one side of the tail lowered as well. And it then makes a reflex movement, meaning a climb, in the direction of the wind and in the end remains with its beak turned in the direction of the wind, before incidental movement, meaning descent, again takes over, 
then reflex, meaning climb, always circling. The trajectories can be interpreted to show usual dynamic soaring maneuvers. The trajectory in Figure 6 has longer upwind climbs and shorter downwind descents. The trajectory in Figure 7 has a series of upwind climbs connected by mainly across wind trajectories, which appear to have downwind components. The trajectories consist of a series of short tacks, like a sailboat tacking into the wind, as the birds gradually gain altitude. Tacking into the wind while climbing has the advantage of preventing a bird from being carried far downwind by leeway. The two trajectories are similar to some numerical simulations of upwind dynamic soaring trajectories, with the exception of the small loops on the right and left sides of figure 6. Both of these trajectories are more complicated than the simple circling climb in a thermal in figure 5, indicating that a thermal was not the source of energy for the upward motion. A numerical simulation of wandering albatross soaring over the ocean found that dynamic soaring could be performed in wind shear consisting of a 3.8 meter per second increase of wind speed over an 18.5 meters increase in altitude in the flight maneuver. This is equivalent to an average increase of wind speed of around 0.21 meters per second per meter of altitude. The implication is that wind shears over 0.21 meters per second per meter could support either faster flight or the vertical climbs that Leonardo sketched, assuming the wind shear extended as high as the altitudes of the sketched birds. Leonardo states, The kite and other birds do not flap their wings very much but seek the current of the wind. When the wind is strong in the sky, then you always see them flying at great heights, but when the wind is light, they are low. Flying in strong winds and strong implied wind shears at great height could be interpreted to be dynamic soaring, but it could also be a result of extracting energy from the turbulence or gustiness of strong wind perhaps using dynamic soaring maneuvers. Leonardo used the same wedge analogy for vertical climbs as he did for a crosswind and downwind dynamic soaring, saying that the bird heading upwind is lifted upward by a wedge of wind striking under the wings. He said that the main lifting occurs when the bird is turned with its breast against the coming of the wind which is very similar to two recent descriptions of how energy is gained in dynamic soaring. Pennyquick mentions that the typical behavior of albatrosses as they pull up out of a separation bubble is to roll belly to wind to a very steep angle or bank when crossing a wave crest to windward. Lissaman describes that a simple rule for gaining energy from wind shear is keeping the belly to the breeze, 
so that the lift vector is inclined in the direction the wind is blowing, which will enable the wind to do work on a bird. Lissemann's explanation is a good, concise summary of the physics of extracting energy from the wind in dynamic soaring. Leonardo's description about a bird gaining altitude in the wind is similar to this. Leonardo did not mention the height of birds climbing in dynamic soaring, but based on subsequent observations, wind shear is not often suitable at altitudes very far above land and ocean, except perhaps when detached boundary layers extend downwind of hills and ridges. Birds climbing using horizontal shear of wind a sketch of two birds climbing near a tower is shown in figure 8. Some of Leonardo's sketches in the Windsor Castle Royal Library collection illustrate water flowing swiftly around the sides of model towers and extending downstream, with much slower water located close to the downstream side of the towers. A strong velocity gradient can be seen to exist between the sluggish flow downstream of the towers and the swift flow extending past their sides. The implication is that Leonardo also knew about horizontal wind shear. In figure 8, two birds are circling upward near a tower. The sketch is interpreted to illustrate dynamic soaring that extracts energy from horizontal gradients of wind interacting with a tower. He appears to describe the circling flight shown in figure 8 as follows. When the bird wants, with its wings expanded, to make a circular motion that will lift it upward through the favor of the wind, then it lowers one of its wings and one of the horns of its tail toward the center of its circulation. And when the motion of the bird is circular, in order to lift itself upward without beating its wings, this receives the wind under one of the wings at one quarter of its circulation, and thus the wind becomes a wedge for it and lifts it upward. Figure 8 and the above description indicate that a bird circling near the wind shadow of a tower periodically turns toward the swift wind flowing past the sides of the tower, resulting in an increase of airspeed that raises the bird like a wedge over a quarter of the circle. When the bird turns back downwind into the wind shadow and encounters another increase of airspeed, this maneuver could result in an upward spiraling trajectory without downwind descents, as shown in figure 8. Lissemann once mentioned to me that Leonardo had described starlings riding the breeze in and out of the wind shadows of the towers of Castello Guidi in Vinci in 1505. When I first saw the sketch shown in figure 8, I thought of a red-tailed hawk that I had watched climbing near the wind shadow of a tall building facing Central Park in New York City. I concluded that the hawk was using gradients of 
horizontal wind located between the wind shadow and the faster wind blowing around the sides of the building to extract energy and climb vertically using dynamic soaring as described above. I ruled out a thermal because the bird was soaring on the north side of the building in the morning in cold, windy winter weather and after an overnight snowfall. I could easily have made a sketch of the flight maneuver like Leonardo's. My observation of the hawk formed the basis of my interpretation of figure 8. Conclusions Leonardo was motivated to discover how birds continuously soar in order to use this information for developing human flight. He made the first known detailed descriptions of the dynamic soaring of birds. The soaring maneuvers he identified are very similar to recent documented dynamic soaring maneuvers of albatrosses extracting energy from the wind for sustained soaring. His detailed graphics of the dynamic soaring of land birds remain the best available today. Leonardo described both horizontal and upward dynamic soaring as well as upward soaring in updrafts. His sketches are excellent and his descriptions of the wet analogy and belly to the breeze maneuver are similar to some modern ones although he never noted the importance of wind shear to dynamic soaring. Leonardo's observations predate by almost 400 years further advances in understanding dynamic soaring by Rayleigh, Baines and others. Acknowledgements The director of the Bibliothèque of the Institut de France, Madame Françoise Bérard, allowed me to inspect Manuscript E and gave permission to use photographs of Leonardo's Manuscript E, which were obtained from l'Agence Photographique de la Réunion des Musées Nationaux Grand Palais in Paris, courtesy of Art Resource Inc. in New York City. Nathalie Régnier redrew figures 1, 5, 7, and 8 from small, low-resolution images. Joe Pedlowski read parts of Giacomelli's 1936 book in Italian to help find out if Giacomelli had recognized that Leonardo's sketches show dynamic soaring. Two anonymous reviewers provided helpful suggestions on an earlier version of this paper. And I will end the second part of Ascension and Aviation, Wings and Dreams, the 13th episode of my podcast here. I thank you from the center of my heart, dear beautiful hearts, for your presence, your time, your light and energy. I wish you love, light and universal harmony always, and the winged ascension and smooth gliding of all your dreams. Until the third part of this episode, I send you fluffy, sparkly, iridescent, rainbow, cosmic, winged, unicorn hugs and kisses. Namaste.